from from Sloan to Wooden to Sabin to Landry? Did any of them have like what were some of the leadership commonalities that they shared? Well, yes. The the one thing that uh, that that came through as I talked to all of their former players is that they were coaching us to play football. They were instructing us, uh, showing us how we could win and so forth. But he said what they all were really doing was was coaching us about life. They were they were teaching us how to live successful lives long after football would be over. Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Today, Jim sits down with Pat Williams, a basketball Hall of Famer former general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers and co-founder of the NBA's Orlando Magic. He's also been the general manager with NBA teams in Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Orlando, including the 1983 world champion 76ers. He's also beaten an incurable form of cancer, multiple myeloma, and has since kept a clean bill of health. Additionally, as a father of 19 children, 14 of them adopted, he continues to be a strong influence within the family. On top of all that, he's an author who's written over a hundred books and an incredible leader, coach, and mentor that anyone would be lucky to learn from. We're so excited to bring you this episode and make sure to share and subscribe to the Good Athlete Podcast. And now, Pat Williams. So Pat, we're so happy to have you here today. Uh, I think we'd like to start. There's so many pieces of your bio. You're un- maybe unique in this way. So many pieces of your bio that we could uh, pull at and tap into. But I wonder if you just give us a little bit of a of a history of you. And and I'm telling you, man, if you want to go all the way back to your experience as a, as a youth athlete, we're here for it. So what led you to the leadership sports domain? Start as early as you'd like. Well, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, my dad was a high school baseball coach and history teacher. And uh, so I grew up in that environment. Uh, he took me to my first Major League Baseball game when I was seven. That was June of 1947. And I fell in love immediately with the sights and the sound and the smell and the color of Major League Baseball at Scheib Park in Philadelphia. And I knew then, uh, after that that Sunday doubleheader, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, it was it became very clear as a seven year old i I wanted to be a ball player, and so everything in my life was devoted towards that end. I, I played all all the sports through high school, but then uh, went to Wake Forest University as a catcher, uh, and I caught for the. Demon Deacons baseball team for four years. At the end of that, those four years, I. Had a wonderful opportunity. I signed a contract with the Phillies. They sent me to Miami, uh, which was their farm club in the Florida State League. And I got to uh, play two years of minor league baseball in the Phillies system, which gave me wonderful insights into the life of a a pro athlete. Uh, The Phillies recognized uh, after those two years that I had a better future behind a desk than I did behind the plate. And uh, that started this front office career in baseball. Uh, I spent uh, five years uh, operating minor league baseball teams for the Phillies. And uh, the last four years in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And at the age of 28, I got a phone call one day from Dr. Jack Ramsey, who was the 
uh, general manager of the 76ers and about to become the head coach. And he said, I need somebody to run my front office. Uh, it was uh, That had to be of the Lord because I had never met Jack Ramsey. He didn't, we didn't know each other, but uh, he told me later that there was a lot more known about me in Philadelphia than I would have thought. Anyway, I left I left the Phillies organization, and that started a 51-year career in the NBA. Wow. Uh, one year in Philly, then four as the GM of the uh, Bulls in Chicago, a, a year with, as the Hawks GM, then back to Philadelphia for 12 seasons, including our 1983 uh, World Championship team. Uh, <laughs> and then... 37 years ago, I had an opportunity to leave Philly and move to Orlando um, and join some business leaders here who wanted to try and bring uh, the NBA as an expansion uh, to Orlando. And we were successful in that effort. Started in June of 86 and 10 months later, in April of 87, the NBA granted us a, an expansion team. Wow. Uh, our 35th season with that uh, for the last four Four and a half years, I've been leading the effort to try and bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. Uh, that's the next challenge uh, for me, and we're, we're we continue to work hard on that, and we're going to see where that what might lead. So, that's um, uh, you've just covered eighty three years right there. <laughs> that that's that's a quick synopsis, Jim. In in a nutshell, eighty three years in a nutshell. Wow. Well, that's. Uh, incredibly impressive we will have for anyone who is just hearing this we'll have all sorts of show notes and promotion to highlight some more of your your bio uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a couple quick questions and then i'm gonna have to get into some of what might be the most human-centered and compelling pieces of your bio and i'll that's just sort of a little teaser there i'll say including 19 children we'll come back to that in just a moment uh, but this orlando expansion i'm sure all of our listeners uh, most of our listeners uh, have e were either witness to that or have since seen some of those documentaries come out on uh, the incredible front end of that experience with some of the biggest name players in the league and uh, the early draft picks, that first pick in the lottery twice over. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, it was it was quite an experience build, building the magic from the beginning, the, the, the early drafts, the first one was in 1989. We took Nick Anderson from the University of Illinois. The next year, we took Dennis Scott from Georgia Tech. And then in 92, that was the year that Shaq was coming out of LSU. And and uh, darn if the ping pong balls didn't bounce correctly for us. And and there we were with winning the lottery and the year that Shaq came out. And, and that was a huge, huge lift for our franchise. But we got another huge lift the next year, 1993, when we came back and won the draft lottery again, uh, which, which uh, again, all I could say was that uh, the Lord was in the middle of that one. Yeah. Uh, because we had one ping pong ball in out of 66. And, and somehow our little ping pong ball fought its way out. And uh, there we were. And that led to the, uh, the acquisition, the drafting of Penny Hardaway. Uh, who came out of the University of Memphis and mm -hmm. uh, joined with Shaq for those years in the mid early to mid nineties, and we, we suddenly we had a we had a ball club and uh, we were in the middle of 
uh, you know, do lots of good things. We had great years. Uh, didn't didn't win it all. We got to the finals in 1995, mm-hmm. and but lost to Houston. And uh, but uh, that that uh, that really stirred things up here in Orlando, and uh, a tremendous amount of interest. And people still look back on that era, you know, very fondly. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it's historic in in countless ways. So you're a business guy. I don't know if you're a mathematician, but what are what are the odds of the ping pong ball dropping two years in a row? They, I mean, it has to be astronomical. Well, they are, and 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 the and, and the NBA did uh, was not happy about that, <laughs> right? They were happy the first year. You know, we we were a struggling club, and all of a sudden, we end up with Shaq. But uh, the NBA was not looking for us to have the first pick the next year. Uh, and right. so after that, uh, the 93 draft, uh, the NBA said never again. And they, they put in uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of new, new rules and new approaches so that there would never be another Orlando. Right. And so, and so that's true. You, you haven't seen any teams at the very back end of the lottery, you know, uh, Get, get a win. Uh, the, the the purpose of that whole thing is the, the worst teams with the poorest records should mm-hmm. get the picks. But they're also very concerned about dumping, you know, where, mm, where teams right. who are struggling, you know, will just continue to struggle and have a bad year so that they can have a better chance to, to win the lottery. So the league is very careful about that. And so the draft now procedure is very complicated and it's all designed to have teams play hard, you know, and win, try to sure. win every that they can, and uh, and also uh, not to have any more 1993 experiences when one out of 66 ping pong balls emerges. Uh, that was well, I, I've just said that that was a god thing, and uh, you know we we were very grateful. Uh, it, it gave us a, a wonderful young uh, unit. We thought we'd be competing for 10 years or more, but Jack is a free agent in the summer of 96, went to LA. Penny uh, had knee problems on both legs and never was the same player again. And we we never did, you know, get and hit the heights that we thought we would. Right. Well, Hey, that's, that's the title maybe of your next book. There will never be another Orlando. That's what, what a unique experience. Well, that was uh, that was quite a time. So we hit we hit hit a hard time, and then uh, after we got down, I guess two thousand four, we won the lottery again. And this was the year that another great big man was coming out, Dwight Howard, mm-hmm. high school of Atlanta, and we won the lottery. And that's who we selected. And uh, Dwight came aboard, and uh, you know, gave us uh, uh, ten wonderful seasons. It was a Perennial all-star, all-defensive player. We, we got back to the finals again, mm-hmm. and uh, Dwight played a big role in, uh, in in that second round of success. Who knocked you guys out the second time in the finals? The Lakers. The we Lakers. played the Lakers with Kobe, Shaq on. Uh, Shaq was gone, but Kobe Bryant was leading leading the attack uh, right. when we we lost to the Lakers. And uh, but again, we were back in the finals and created great excitement in Orlando, but we couldn't couldn't quite finish it. So, so we've had two trips to the finals, but uh, never have gotten over that last hurdle. That's incredible. 
right. Well, I, I, he was, I mean, my goodness, I was obsessed is probably extreme because I'm in Chicago. I was a Michael Jordan guy, but Shaq was right up there with the most entertaining, you know, some of my favorites, especially coming from a football background. We, you know, that guy could have pl- just as well played tight end at LSU or something like that. What, what impressed you all? Um, when you got that for the first pick in the draft, what you impressed you most about him, or was this just a clear cut? There's nobody better. Well, that was a, that was an easy draft. I mean, yeah. you didn't have to bring other players and work them out and so forth. Uh, there were some good players in that draft, but Shaq was, uh, you know, miles ahead of everybody in that draft. He was young, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. I played three years at LSU. Uh, you know, great size, great strength. And you just knew that he was going to have a tremendous career. And he did. Yep, he did. He, he, even though he, he left us as a free agent, which left this, our, our franchise really in, in bad shape. Right. Uh, but he going to L.A. and won some titles there. And, you know, he had a Hall of Fame career. I think he, I think he maxed out everything that he had. Yep. Uh, but he, but he was a he was a man child. Yeah, <laughs> good description. Massive size, a good humored guy. You know, he's mm-hmm. still extremely popular. You know, you can't uh, turn on a TV and not see Shaq endorsing something. Right. From off to to, uh, to pizza to this that and the other, it's unbelievable. It really is. That he's retained that uh, connection to the public. And I think it's because he's he's an enduring guy, you know, kind of a big big kid, you know. He's still a kid in it, at heart, and you yeah. can see that just the way he he does things. He's he's got an entertaining personality, and uh, he's he's lived a good life, and uh, he's in his early fifties now, and he, there's a lot more on the on, on the horizon for Shaq. I I don't think there are any limits to what he can do in life. Well, that is an incredible statement coming from someone like you. Uh, yeah, for sure. 50s is young. 50s is not young for the NBA to be an active player, but it will be fun to watch whatever that guy does next. He has, he's got one of those change the mood of the room sorts of personalities. It feels like it's just so impressive. Uh, did he break any backboards when he was with you in Orlando? I think he tore down a couple of them, sure. uh, but he listened done that every night right but uh, I, I think probably the nba said shack go easy you know <laughs> yeah. these backboards are expensive and then they delay the game but uh, he, he he got a few of them That's but uh, he, he was a gentle giant uh he um you know i don't think he ever took life too seriously i think he enjoyed enjoyed life still does yeah. uh was an entertainer at heart and a terrific player, you know. He, he go look at his numbers. He, he put up some amazing stats. So, when you list the great centers of history, you know, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you, you got to put Shaq right in there. Yeah. You know, Moses Malone. There were uh, others, but Shaq's right there in that probably in that four or five some. You know, just based yep. on what he did and the success that he had, just. Go look up his numbers. It was right. remarkable. So he's he's right there with the greatest centers of all time. Oh, I, I believe that entirely. And and from an outside perspective, from people who 
no basketball, kind of no basketball, or maybe you're just watching the NBA every so often. He's also just, he's one of the most impressive specimens to ever play the sport. It feels like he did look like, even now looking back at highlights, he looked like a football player among basketball players. Almost. He was, it was incredible. And, and for what it's worth, Pat, I still kind of picture when I think of Shaq, I still kind of picture him on the rim, two big feet up in the air, but with like black jersey, white pinstripes in, in an Orlando Magic or a dark jersey, white pinstripes. I, I, I picture him in when he first broke into the league. It was such a – Well, he was – listen, he changer. was kind of lean back then when you yeah. think about it. Great athlete and he, he had mobility and as the years went on, he got increasingly heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, towards the end of his career, he, he you know, he didn't have that mobility, that jumping ability because right. he got gotten heavier. Uh, he's every bit of seven two, and uh, you have no idea what he weighs. He's got to weigh four hundred pounds at that height, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it, it, he's just uh, a rare. Let's just call him a rare breed. You That's right. Shaquille O'Neal's who have come down the pike, if if any, really. Yeah, that's and, uh, right. I'm not sure when we'll see another one. That's fair. I think you're probably right. So do you stay in touch with a lot of these folks, the players that you were? I I, I spoke to Shaq not long ago mm-hmm. uh, by phone. Um, so he's he's always been very nice to me, always been very friendly, cordial. We, we had a good relationship. I, I, I drafted him in uh, in the draft of 92. And, um, you know, and so I, I feel like Shaq is definitely a big part of my life and my, my career in sports. For sure. And you mentioned his disposition and, and the big kid and the fun to be around sort of personality he had. In your work as a leadership coach, as a speaker, we, I'd, I'd like to get into the, some of the concepts in revolutionary leadership before we, before we close. Um, what does that sort of disposition add to a team? How does that enhance the people around him? How does that fit in? Well, when your best player, when your franchise player, uh, you know, cares deeply about uh, doing things the right way and about, about winning, competing, you know, that rubs off on everybody else. And so it's awfully important to uh, to have that guy or a couple of guys like that who can police the locker room. That was Phil Jackson's great asset in Chicago. Michael Jordan, who was his best player, was also the leader in the in the locker room, and he, he so many problems, uh, difficulties, never got to Phil mm. because Michael had cleaned them up in the in the locker room. And so, when your best player is also your best leader. Uh, you've got you've got the perfect combination, right? Uh, so that the coach is not dealing with every little tiny thing, or this comes up, or that comes up. My, Michael would always clean it up. Yeah. So that if you can have if you can have your best player, it's tough for your twelfth man to do that. Sure. But if you but if your your best player is also takes leadership seriously and. Uh, wants things to run properly that that's a great blessing so when you were in chicago where you did you align with michael what was what did your tenure here look like well my four years were far before michael but i i i took the gm job with the bulls in august of 1969 
and uh, and had four seasons with the Bulls. This was the era of Dick Mata, the coach, and Chet Walker, Bob Love, Tom Borwinkle, uh, Gary Sloan, Norm Van Leer. That was that was that whole era. Uh, the old Chicago Stadium. Um, uh, pro basketball had never been successful in Chicago, and right. you look back into the '40s. This franchise came and left. This franchise came and moved. Uh, the Bulls were not healthy. Uh, they had struggled terribly. In fact, uh, you know, for that 69-70 season, they'd already moved eight home games out of Chicago to play in Kansas City. Mm. Um, so the Bulls, in many ways, were maybe one one leg out of the city again. So that was the challenge uh, to uh, not just build a winning ball club, but get the fan base of Chicago interested in pro basketball. Yeah. Uh, we, that was a, that was a daily, a daily challenge because it was not a, it was not a successful. It, it was not a big time NBA basketball city. It was a big football city. It was right. a very nearly successful hockey city. Mm -hmm. Of course you had the Cubs and the White Sox. So it was a baseball city, but, the NBA lag behind, but I think we, we got it going in that 69 to 73 period. We got, we got things stirred up and, uh, and, and interest began to develop, which uh, you could see it. It was very encouraging. And Michael didn't come along until 1984. So right. it was a good, you know, a good 10 years after I had left. So how did you, how did you drum up excitement um, before the real winning began? Well, it's called promotion. Yep. You know, yes, when you don't promote, a terrible thing happens. Mm. Nothing. Right. And so so I, every promotional trick that I knew of, uh, every promotional trick that you could beg, borrow, or steal, I would incorporate it. Uh, our job was to get people into the building. You know, many of mm. you had never, never seen a bat, an NBA game before. But our job was to get them in the building and then uh, provide such an entertainment experience, an entertaining evening that they, they, they wanted to come back. Yeah. Uh, they wanted more of this. That was the challenge that we were faced with. So little by little, you could see a building, you know, little by little. And, uh, and then, then on when we got to be a contender and we, we got this very attractive, tough, hard-nosed team that was – Able to play with all the top teams in the NBA. That was a big part of it. I mentioned the names of those players. Old-time Bulls fans will remember them vividly. Oh, yeah. Norm Van Leer is still a pretty much a household name in Chicago. Yeah, the, the, that whole group. People will never forget that team, those teams of the early 70s. Right. Mid-70s. And um, I, I was – and I love Chicago. still – my favorite city, although I hear so many things about Chicago that worry me or bother me, but uh, I, I, I love that city. And, uh, anytime, anytime I get an excuse to come back, you know, I always try and take advantage of that because Chicago has a, a special heartbeat to it. I, I love the city. I, I am so encouraged by that. <laughs> I happen to love it too, and I'm, I'm. I've been blessed to travel all around the world and, and there's something, there's just something about it. You say a special heartbeat. I think that's right. 
there, there's something about Chicago. So you say it's your favorite city. Well, it is. I although I, I don't I don't need the Chicago winters anymore. <laughs> uh, but in this in the summertime, spring and summer, early fall. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a it's a wonderful wonderful city. So I I read now about all the troubles and the, the issues in Chicago. It, it, it disturbs me. Yeah, I uh, I I hear you. I hope I hope they can get that resolved. I hope so too, Pat, for a ton of reasons. I'm always skeptical, uh, just a touch, I'll call it healthy skepticism around the news, right? You, you push, you push, quote, newsworthy things. Newsworthy now is whatever gets clicks. So you highlight the bad, but, um, or, or at least some news outlets do. But yeah, there are things that need to be fixed around here, but I still think it's one of the top cities in the world. So I appreciate you saying that. And I know I speak for all of Chicago when I say you're welcome back anytime. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, as I said, those four years in Chicago meant, meant an awful lot to me, and uh, I, I still have a great love. I love that. What, All right. What else is on your mind, Jim? Well, I've got three question, four questions that are pretty, I think, pretty important. One of okay. them is uh, I want to know who some of the best leaders um, in sport were that you've ever been around. If you had to whittle it okay. down to maybe like a top five leaders. And this will be our transition well, to your more modern work. Jerry, uh, Jerry Sloan, uh, who was the captain of the Bulls and our our big guard, um, you know, had leadership written all over him. Uh, he uh, he just had a, a way about him that people respected him the way he played. He played so hard and never backed down and uh, had a great basketball mind. He, he would be right at the head of my list. Uh, Julius Irving, you know, hmm. was uh, – a, a strong leader. He, uh, you know, he had time for people, cared about people. Uh, he, he was always interested in people. Uh, so you, you definitely have to put him on the list. Um, the great John Wooden, you'd have to mm. have to put Wooden on your list. I was so fortunate to be able to spend time with him. I ended up writing four books about Coach Wooden, mm. and. Um, there's nobody quite like him. Mm. He had a, a way about him that uh, that challenged you to, uh, to live a live a good life. You know, whenever you left his presence, you felt better. You just mm. felt better about yourself, and you, and you wanted to please him. You didn't want him ever to be disappointed in you. Uh, so John wouldn't, and he did it with a with an extraordinary humble spirit. Mm. You know, I, I just had a great respect for Coach Wooden and the way he went about things. Um, that guy. Tom Landry, I got to know Coach Landry, and I I admired him. I, I thought he had a wonderful way as he went about leadership. I always had great admiration for, for great Tom Landry. Uh, so those, those are some names that, uh, that come to the forefront. I listen. I think Nick Saban. You've mm. got to put him on that list. You know he he is. He's always had success wherever he's gone, and um, he, he's he's strong. You know, a, a few other quick thoughts. I've I've written a book about um, uh, Bear Bryant uh, mm. Bear Bryant. So you've got to put him on that list. Uh, I don't know if you see I, this. I, again, Bear Bryant, right there. 
Uh, Bobby Bowden on Leadership is another book that I wrote. I wrote a book called Tom Osborne on Leadership. And then another one, uh, Vince Lombardi on Leadership. So those those would be a few more that I admire a great deal and did thorough research on all of them and uh, and wrote books about how they went about leadership and how they, how they, how they did it. When you... Okay, so that's first of all, that was maybe the most impressive answer to that question anyone has ever been able to give. Like this is this is a Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame list of of leaders in that space. Were, were, were there any things that were sort of uniformly true? Were anything that that spans from from Sloan to Wooden to Sabin to Landry? Did any of them have like or some of the leadership commonalities that they shared? Well, yes. The the one thing that um, that that came through as I talked to all of their former players is that um, they were coaching us to play football. They were instructing us, uh, showing us how we could win and so forth. But he said, "What they all were really doing was was coaching us about life." Mm. They were, they were teaching us how to live successful lives long after football would be over. Uh, they, they wanted us to succeed in life. And so, and, and, and these players all said, we didn't realize that at the time. You know, we were goofy 20-year-olds. You know, sure. but, but now that they got out there and they had moved deeper into life and and fathers and grandfathers, you know, they said, uh, now we get it. Now we get it. That's what Coach Wooden was doing. Uh, that's what Bear Bryant was doing with us. Yeah, now we get it. He was, was coaching us to, to be good at life. Oh, that's so um, good. Pat, you, you have no idea how, how much that resonates. That gives me the chills just to think about. Um, one of our positions is – and I know it's provocative and I've devoted my life in a lot of ways to the area of sport as of you. But one of our thoughts is sports don't teach life lessons. Coaches teach life lessons. The, the cultures they create are, you know, we think that sports have maybe the most powerful opportunity. Uh, it might be the most powerful educational experience most people ever have is in sport. But we, we've said many times that we hope that that doesn't make any coach feel like they can take take a day off uh, in the sense that it's not basketball that's going to do it for them. It's you at basketball practice. And coach Wooden, of course, did that as well as anyone ever has, but it, that, that really is encouraging to hear you say that. Um, one of one of his former players uh, said to me, he said the, the, uh, the largest classroom on the UCLA campus was the Pauley pavilion. Mm. He said that's that's where Coach Wooden was was doing his teaching, yeah. And um, and, and, he, and and this former player said there was no no classroom quite like it on the UCLA campus. Um, and and that's what Coach Wooden would talk about. That he said I was teaching these young men. He didn't use the word coaching. I was teaching these young men. Yes, we wanted to be successful on the court, but we, we wanted our young men to be successful you know, long after. You know, he, 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 that, that's how he talked. Yeah. 
And uh, the players, you know, at the time, he was not easy to play for all the time. And right. he got his ways. And, but, but down the road, oh, my goodness, they, they swear by him to this day, from Bill Walton to Swen Nader to, I mean, just any, any, any player you pick. Sure. Uh, they, uh, they treasure, they treasure the experience they had playing for Coach Wooden at UCLA. Treasure it. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And, uh, of course, Coach lived till 99. I'm so glad he did because the books that he wrote all took place after his 85th birthday, just, just about. Is that right? I think one, all, he, all of the best writing, the best things he did with, with these books were well, you know, mid 80s to mid 90s. Hmm. And if he had died in his early 80s, you know, we wouldn't have all that. So you can go in oh, just about any bookstore in America in the sports oh, yeah. section, you'll you'll see different Coach Wooden books. I I've written, I wrote ended up writing four books about him, and uh, so I, I feel that I you know. I've got a really, really good handle on the man, plus the time that I spent with him at different restaurants or in his condo in Encino, California. That was a incredible experience. Imagine. I'm so very, very grateful that we uh, will have that time with Coach Whitten because there was no nobody quite like him. You know, he would be sure. a great success, but he was far more than just a basketball. Mm. He's an instructor of life, and then people from all over the place. You know, it didn't matter who they were. They, his phone number was listed. Call him up. There might have been a high school coach from Iowa. And, coach, I'm going to be in Southern California. Is there a way that I could come by? I'd like to ask some questions. I'd like to ask. Coach, the coach wouldn't was always would always go out of his way to do that. Right. Always, Incredible. I don't, I don't think he ever turned anybody down. I don't now, know. This is, yeah, the greatest coach of all time. Every poll that's ever been done on Wooden always is number one. Mm -hmm. um, Lombardi maybe two, and um, you know then Tom Landry being in the top five. Um, is in there somewhere and so forth, but but sure. uh, John Wooden always, always tops the list, always, yeah. always numero uno. Yeah, and um, so it's important to study him, it's really important to know what about them. All right, Pat, I think that's great advice to any coaches who might be listening. I hope they check out your four books on the man and check out anything that he wrote. But even like, I wonder if you've even seen his TED talk, it, it felt like what you're describing was so authentically him. And I think he did his Ted talk in his mid to late eighties. Like you say, a lot of his great thought work happened after that. But I remember he was reciting poems. He was talking about the human experience. Oh, and by the way, in his back pocket, he had 10 national championships, but he was talking about people always. And, and it's so what a great term you use that his players treasured their time with him. You see guy, I, I can't remember who it was, but I think, I feel like, it might have been Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Someone was reflecting on Coach Wooden, full tears coming down. Grown man in the NBA, you reflect on the guy, and it can't help but pull at your heartstrings. So incredible. We, we I mean, something to us aspire to, but they may have only made one like that. Um, 
Well, speaking in of fact, Kareem a few yeah. years ago wrote a book about his experiences with John Wooden. Did he really? Um, Swen Nader, who is a wonderful poet, you know, would write poetry about Coach Wooden. It's remarkable. Uh, and and the greatest uh, is Coach Wooden advocate is Bill Walton. Right. Who oh, was yeah. probably, probably his biggest challenge. You know, Bill Walton was very independent. Mm-hmm. How he went about things, and Coach Wooden was very firm in his rules, and and uh, you know Bill Walton wanted to do his own thing, and Coach Wooden made it very clear that you're going to abide by other team rules, and if you can't, Bill, well, I, I wish you all the very best. Hope you have a great life, and you know, he, yeah. And Bill, big the biggest struggle was his hair. I remember, and, yeah. This was long before what you see today, mm-hmm. you know, with ball players. Uh, but Bill was that way way back, and Coach wouldn't wouldn't stand. So he made it clear that if, if Bill would get his hair straightened out, and 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 Bill came to practice after visiting the barber, ah. um, Coach wouldn't prevailed. Bill 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 would go on and on telling you those stories, and so he had to. It's a great, great love. Well, in in love, that's right. He had love, genuine love for the man. And think about that. I mean, the standard is the standard, and what confidence in in the standard, in the in the lessons that he knew that he was teaching to folks. What confidence to to say, Bill, who may be the most talented basketball player, certainly among them at the college ranks at the time. We love you, Bill. But if this isn't for you, then there are other places for you. But if you're going to be here, you got to be on board with us. I mean. Incredible. That's right. Truly. Bill incredible. came back with a haircut. So, and Bill came back anyway, with a haircut. That's exactly right. Bill, Bill returned to practice with his haircut. I love that. I listen. If, if I had my way, particularly in baseball and all the sports, uh, I would I would absolutely require <laughs> that every. Well, I don't mean to say this, Jim, but I'd require so, that they be shaven. Yeah. And that they have haircut properly. Sure. Uh, the the guy who, who set that standard was George Steinbrenner with the Yankees. Oh, right. Sure. Way, back, way back. If you're going to play for the Yankees, you're going to look like a Yankee. Hmm. And, and, and you know, this is a proud organization with a great reputation. And, you know, you're not going to come here looking like a bum. Right. And, and so, so he, you, you did not play for the Yankees unless you had your hair cut properly and had a clean face and so forth. And, uh, I I wish many more teams would have done that. Yeah, you know, with their with because boy, and I and I think often, can you imagine? Can you picture Ted Williams back in the day, mm. looking like Brandon Marsh of the Phillies? You know, right, right. Can you picture Stan Musial, the great Stan Musial, looking? Looking with hair halfway down his back and a beard down to here, and right. No, not for you. Not me anyway. Uh, that, that's, that that's my little soapbox job. Fair so, enough. Well, I appreciate it. I'll the, get uh, off the soapbox. What else? Stay, what else is on your mind? I well, what you stay up there as mind? long as you feel like it. But one thing that I want to ask about is you talk about the human element. Well, did I read correctly? Nineteen children. Yeah, we have a big family. We uh, yeah. we we adopted fourteen of those children over a ten year period. They came from other countries, 
we we have four South Korean children, four Filipino sons. Uh, we have uh, two two uh, girls from Romania, hmm. and uh, four children from Brazil. Wow! And and they and then five birth kids. Mm-hmm. So that should be 19. They're all adults. Uh, the, the youngest is in his late 30s. The oldest are getting on into early 50s. Uh, they've presented as 21 grandchildren. And so wow. we're all bore into the, uh, the grandparenting world. And, uh, that includes uh, Little League Baseball. It includes mm-hmm. uh, basketball tournaments. Includes uh, gymnastics. It includes just about everything. So we're we're going back through it all again with grandchildren. <laughs> so well, what a cool it, that I mean I can only imagine. Uh, I, okay, so they are now experiencing the sight, smell, sound, color that you described at seven years old. They're they're all getting to live that for the first time. Many that must be a thrill. It is. Um, I, uh, I, I I go to the to their games uh, as long as I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'm not allowed to uh, yell at the umpires or the referees. I'm not allowed <clears throat> to uh, yell at the players. I've got to sit there quietly and watch. And if I do that, uh, I'm allowed to come back to, to another game. <clears throat> but if I if I misstep, they threaten to put tape over my mouth. <laughs> you know, I, I can come again if I have my mouth taped. And so I'm is, learning. I'm that. learning to blend and not not uh, scream too loud and not get carried away. Uh, but uh, I I'm I'm getting a see how grandparents it's a marvelous joy out of seeing their grandchildren that's incredible um, and not all of these grandkids are athletes sure they've got other areas of skill um and so we we don't try to make them into something that they aren't hmm. but uh it, it's uh, we're, we're we're having a good time with them I believe it. And who who imposed these rules? Is that your children? Is that Ruth? Is that the umpires? Uh, well, it, no, it's the, the children have made it clear and the children's parents have made it clear. And my wife, Ruth, has made it clear. I, I can go. So there's and, a committee I'm, that came together to put these oh, rules it, in place. Yeah, it, 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 it's from all angles. Uh, but I, I have to abide by that rule of, of not to at the refs and you're not to scream with the players and not to holler over at the coach you just sit there and watch the game yeah. and enjoy the and and, and and root for your player your children right right quiet there you so, go fair enough hoppers we don't want you to embarrass us that's what i hear so right and i remember when i was playing way back it was the same with my dad he was mm-hmm. an outgoing you know, bubbly guy, and uh, oh boy, it would embarrass me to hear him <laughs> yell and, and you know, carry on. So I, 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 I've, but that's so typical, you know, when you oh, hear yeah. that, deep and you want your children, or your grandchildren to do well, you know, you can often step over the boundary lines there. So it's incredible. I, my boundary lines are very clear. 
the boundary lines are very clear. You'll you'll support. Maybe you'll treat people to pizza afterwards. And and oh yes, enough. oh yeah. <laughs> I love but it. Dad, don't embarrass us. I remember oh. that same sentiment back in the day. Um, what else? Okay. What else is what else is on your mind, Jim? Well, I got, so I, I I read another thing in your bio, Pat. That if you're comfortable addressing, uh, I'd love to hear about it. I heard I read the term uh, incurable cancer. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, I was diagnosed uh, well over 14 years ago. I went in for a yearly physical, and the the doctor said to me, "There's something in your blood work that doesn't look right." Never heard that before, right? And so she recommended that I, I go see, uh, get further tests, and and they did. And after further tests, the, the Dr. Reynolds sat me down and said, uh, Pat, I, I, I gotta tell you, you've got cancer, just like that. Mm. Yeah, and I, me, I just finished running my 58th marathon. And, and uh, I'm, I'm physically and so forth. And you're telling me I've got cancer. I said, what, 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 what is it? He said, it's, it's multiple myeloma. Hmm. Huh? Melanoma? No, 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 that's a skin cancer. Although I've never heard of it. Multiple. I said, well, tell me more. He said, well, it's a, a cancer of the bone marrow. You know, the blood in the bone marrow. That's the story with it. Hmm. Uh, my wife was with me taking notes on all of this. It, was, it just was overwhelming. Um, I can't imagine. But I eventually said to Dr. Reynolds, I said, well, what do, you, what, what do we do now? He said, well, we, we start treatment. And, and they did. They started chemo immediately. Uh, after about a year, that they didn't have it where they wanted it. So that led to a stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. Which, which was effective. That that was successful. Mm, good. I've been on various forms of chemo, of oral chemo since. Uh, the, the good news in, in cancer today, there, there's so many new developments, and so many of these uh, experiments have worked. And uh, so I'm uh, every time I go in now, about three, three times a year, I guess. Look. My blood, they look at and said, we don't see any signs of it. Oh, my goodness. So I, I feel good. I'm, my energy level is good. I'm able to lead a full life. I, I don't run marathons anymore. Sure. And the one luxury I have when I, I get tired or sleepy in the afternoon, I get to take a nap. <laughs> and and at, my, at my age, naps are considered an activity. Sure. Uh, so, so I one of my afternoon activities is a nap, uh, but um, but I'm I'm able to keep my full life, and I'm I'm grateful. God's been very good, uh, uh, and the, the, and we've got good medical care here in Orlando, and good. So uh, that's my cancer story, and I, 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 I didn't volunteer for this, but I I found that I'm uh, kind of a go-to guy, you know, when people are. Diagnosed with a new form of cancer or multiple myeloma, mm. I, hear, I hear from so many of them, you know, because they, they know of my experience. And so I feel very uh, comfortable talking to them and what they can expect and what, what it's going to be like. Sure. 
and above all, to encourage them. It's not a death sentence. Right. That uh, so many wonderful discoveries. And uh, these scientists, you know, we can't have enough tribute to them. Right. Researchers, scientists, could you do all this? John, my operation. So well, I, I take a little tiny pill called Nindlaro. Okay. Once a week, three weeks on, it's about that size. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some brilliant mind thought that here's what we do. We put this, this, that, and the other in this little tiny pill and, and take that uh, once, a, once a week, three weeks, and a week off. And it's going to fight through, and it's going to be success. It, it boggles my mind. It is unbelievable. It sounds like science fiction. How all that happened in this little tiny pill. That is um, and uh, but it, but it but it but it's pricey. Sure. In that little pill, I don't even want to tell you what it costs. <laughs> but um, but it, it but in my case, it's been successful. Yeah. Magical. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to so many people, you know, who have done this work and done this research, you know, led, led the way. The doctors and nurses who have, who have studied this, understanding of it. So, well, and, and I would imagine that influences sort of the filter you put on everything moving forward. Just that filter of gratitude. Well, I, I think what happens is that when you've had many as many life experiences I've had in, in so many different fields, mm-hmm. the, the baseball world, the basketball world, uh, the writing world, mm-hmm. the cancer world, the aging world, I mean, a lot of grandparenting world, you know, I feel sure. that if people want to talk and get counsel and advice. I had many mentors in my life. So I look many of many mentors. And so to be a mentor or a life coach or a sage, you know, whatever you want, uh, is, is a real I want to do that. Well, I, I, I couldn't thank you more for the work that you do. And I'm sure I'm there are just countless out there that feel the same way. That we we're pretty the idea that gratitude would fuel the giving back is uh it's just incredible. You experience, you learn, and then you give back. You're an educator. You're an influencer. I don't know what the right word is. Stage would come at a certain stage after all these books and all these experiences for sure. But the, the instinct to give it back isn't always typical, but you certainly have that. Would that be well, Jim, here, here's, yeah. here I, here's how I'd like to close this. Tell me. Uh, everything in life rises and falls on leadership. Uh, it always has. It always will. It will always be a topic of intense, intense discussion and debate in our country, mm-hmm. whether it's leadership of sports teams, you know, those leaders of the Bears, they don't know what they're doing, <laughs> or leadership in government, leadership in business, leadership in the military, mm-hmm. leadership in the church. Leadership and education, everything rises and falls on leadership. Hmm. And I'm going to give you a little poem uh, that my friend Sven Nader wrote that I think captures how I view leadership. 
seven things one must do to be a leader right and true. Have vision that is strong and clear. Communicate so they can hear. Have people skills based in love and character that's far above, the competence to solve and teach, and boldness that has fearless reach, a serving heart that stands close by to help, assist, and edify. I think that summarizes what it takes to be a great leader, the seven sides of leadership that I put together briefly for you. So... It starts with vision, communicating your vision, people's skills, character counts, competence, boldness, and a, and a serving heart. That, I think when you study the great leaders of history, uh, the, the very best leaders, uh, they, they possess those seven sides. And, and, and you need all seven. You can't pick and choose to be a great leader. All seven of those sides. Well, I, I'm very grateful for you sharing that. I'm going to look up the poet Nader. I, I actually made a note earlier. That is such a, that's inspiring. And I like the holistic perspective. It can't be just one thing. You know, you can be both tough and kind, competitive and caring. You can't just have people skills. You also have to have vision. This holistic approach makes absolute complete sense. And those, are, this, those, are the, those are the ingredients of great leaders and, and 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 people can do that, you know. They can they can really work at leadership. They can improve mm-hmm. at it. They can become more capable as leaders. But but having those seven flags there, you know, certainly helps. Absolutely. Well, takes those are the fundamentals of being a great leader. I think it's so good, Pat. And is that what? Will, how many of those things are addressed in in revolutionary leadership? That's your newest book, correct? Um, that book came out. The, my one of my newest is called "Who Coached the Coaches." Ooh, uh, it has hundreds of coaches, managers in, in professional and college sports. One question: uh, Who is the key person in you becoming a coach? Mm. And then, and the book consists of exactly what they told me. Love that, and it was was fascinating. Who was the key person in you becoming a coach? And what sort of things did you find? Well, there were there were some there were some that were uh, pretty uh, collective. One was my father, my dad. He was the key. I heard that a lot. The other one I heard a lot was my high school coach. Uh, I, I I idolized him and looked up to him. I, I wanted to be like him. Yeah. I, I wanted to do what he did. I heard that a lot. Yeah. So those, those were probably were the two that I heard Not most. Sure. Well, th- wouldn't that make sense developmentally, of course, too. I hope, I hope all the coaches listening to this hear what you're saying, because at that developmental stage, the mentorship, the leadership, the guidance, it's almost just, it's amplified. That's really well, I, I agree. With, I, I think that is true. I think that everything rises and falls on leadership, Jim. Always has and always will. It's always a topic in our country. It is. Hot. Absolutely. 
next 12 months. That's all we're going to hear about. Oh, I know. I know. The election in, in 12 months. You know, that's, that's really what they're debating. That's right. He's not a good job. He hasn't led well. I'm going to try this person, you know, and we're going to have this huge debate about leadership. Right. And and uh, that that's the case with sports. It's the case with every aspect of life. It all comes down to leadership. And that's why we need to start training young people. We need to start teaching them at a, at a young age. You know, the importance of being a leader, a leader on your sports team, a leader in your classroom, uh, a leader in your scouting work, leading in your church youth group. You know, we mm. get young men and women on that leadership path early. And once and once, once a kid gets a touch of leadership, they never want to go back. Totally agree. Once, once they get a you know, a chunk of it under their belt, you know, and they really get a feel for it. They, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to go back and just bop along with the troops. No, no, I'm, you're exactly right. And you also say what's so, one of the things that's so encouraging is you don't necessarily have to be born with this social influence. A guy like Shaq who walks into a room and changes the room. There are folks like that, but as you have said, leadership can be built. It can be practiced. It's a skill. You know, people ask me all the time, are leaders born or made? And I mm -hmm. say both. Yep. Uh, every leader that I've ever been aware of, including Jesus, at some point was born. Mm. Every one of them. <laughs> right. And, it's, and at some point, they got an opportunity. Generally, something was thrust on them. You know, the coach said to the kid, I want you to... I want you to uh, step up here and lead on this team or uh, some, some assignment was given or something was asked of them and they had a, and the, and the initial reaction that people have is, Oh, I'm too busy. Mm. Okay, get somebody else. I'll help, but get somebody else. Uh, but, but in many cases, you know, you don't get that option. Boom. We need you to do it. And mm. you're faced with, thinking on this project that requires you to be the leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're scared to death. You're, you're, you're worried, but then you begin to do the right things. And when the project is over and it's been a wonderful success, you know, the reaction is, what? Right. right. Man, what, what I got a lot out of that. Well, I, I, at that point, I say, well, welcome to the Leadership Academy. <laughs> you just you just had an experience of, of being a leader. And, and you're going you're to be doing that the rest of your life. Oh, man. I love that. That resonates, too. And there's the boldness right there. It's never fully safe. There's always going to be a touch of fear. And there's probably oh, yeah. no other way to do it. You can equip yourself with, with tools and strategies. That's probably appropriate. Finding support, probably appropriate, but eventually, just as you say, you got to jump in. you got to get through the experience, come out the other side, and reflect on what just happened. That's empowerment, isn't it? I can still hear George W.'s voice in the White House years ago. I'm the decider. <laughs> I decide what to do. I decide what's right. And, of course, they media would chop his head off but that's that's part of it as well sure 
So every every organization needs a decider. Because mm. if you don't have somebody who's going to decide and make the big tough decisions, mm. that's an organization that's going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Just going to spin around. Yeah, I could not a bold decider, you know, your organization is going to be very frustrating. A bold decider. That's right. And I, and, and to anyone who is on their leadership development path, I, I'm sure you, you're the known better to ask than you there. I mean, no leader has ever been universally liked. Isn't that one of the challenges of leadership? So if the goal is to just please everyone and, and not make waves or anything like that. It's an impossibility. A bold decider. It's a great term. That's true. I mean, when you take a leadership position, you're 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 opening up to controversy. Yeah. You're also opening yourself up to uh, to a, a life of great great excitement and adventure. Uh, a great life, a life of fulfillment. Mm. That you, that you can't get any other way. And and we all have to be leaders. You know, listen, mom and dad, you're leaders in your house. And grandparents, you have that same role. Everybody's mm-hmm. a leader. You get down to it. And if you do nothing but lead yourself, which is important. Uh, so I would say... start. Everybody, everybody's a leader. Yeah. And and it, and it and it sure helps if you know uh, how to do it. If, sure. if so that those seven principles, I encourage people to write them down and and uh, have it where you can visualize it each day. Mm-hmm. Um, leadership always starts with vision. The, the greatest leaders see farther down the road. They see uh, they see in vivid technicolor. Uh, they see the finished product clearly in their minds, and then they work backwards, putting the pieces in place to turn that vision into reality. But that vision is, is going to be completely useless unless you can communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I encourage people to remember the C's of leadership. Be clear. Be concise. Be correct. Be consistent. Be confident. Be calm. Um, be courageous. There are times when it takes great courage, you know. So that's where leadership begins. It starts with vision and then the ability to communicate that vision. And, and you, you gotta you gotta communicate it more than once. Mm-hmm. You be communicating it every day. You know, to get, get through to people. Absolutely. The third thing we talked about were people skills. The best mm-hmm. leaders care about people. They're interested in other people. Uh, they, have, they have a heart for people. They want to know about people. Um, they, they're good listeners. They've learned, how, they've learned how to listen well. And they've learned how to ask good questions to draw people out. Mm. And, and those questions... Always have to be one sentence hmm. questions. You begin with what, why, where, when, how, and who. That's how you draw people out. Hmm. And, the, and the best leaders are good at that. Hmm. 
And above all, you know, they, they love me. Uh, Dick Vermeil, the NFL coach, just celebrated his 87th birthday. I, I've always been he, he said one day years ago, he said, I tell my assistant coaches I love them. Hmm. He said, why should you feel something and not say it? Can you say so, that uh, one more time? Well, it, it, it was Dick Vermeil, the longtime yeah. NFL coach, who said, I, I tell my assistant coaches I love them. He said, why should you feel something and not say it? So good. So that was that was Dick's observation. That's an incredible. Fourthly, character character counts in leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to have character. If if you can only go as high on the leadership ladder as your character will allow you. When I think of character, yes, I think of honesty, telling the truth. I I think of integrity. Um, you know, a consistency in your walk and talk. They match. I think of responsibility. You know, the best leaders are not finger pointers. That's right. This was done well, and I did it. This was done poorly, and I did it. But they uh, they uh, take responsibility. And, and the other thing I would say about character leaders is they have a humble spirit. It's the most attractive human qualities, an absence of arrogance. Coach Wooden was that way. He never, yeah. never talked about himself. So that that's part of character. Yeah, and, and competence. Competence. Yeah, uh, the leaders are good at what they do. And uh, the number one competence is you've got to be able to solve problems. Yeah. And anybody can lead in the good times. When the problems start descending, that's when you find out who the good leaders are. Mm. Um, Colin Powell put it this way. He said. Um, Leadership is solving problems. He said, when, when soldiers stop bringing you their problems, he said, you're, you're through as a leader. Mm. They, they've decided that you, you don't have time for them or you don't care, and they, they tune you out. Uh, I'll tell you another competence is, is, uh, is spotting talent. Spotting talent, sure. Spotting talent and then uh, putting that talent together into a, a, an effective I'll tell you who was great was Walt Disney. I, I've written three books. Walt Disney. I did. I knew that you were a little bit of an expert on Disney. That's right. About, I came here years ago. Walt. Uh, Walt had the ability to spot talent, uh, and it may be in, in, in maybe in the area of drawing and cartoons. And he said, "I'm going to take you out of here and send you down to Disneyland." And, and the and the guy would say. Uh, I don't want to. I'm I'm losing your audio just a little bit. I'm sorry. But he but he would do it, and so and then years later, these guys would say to me, uh, "Walt knew more about me than I did." Oh wow! He, he he knew more about my capabilities, and he would move me into a different area, and that's where I thrived mm. uh, because Walt knew how to take talent and put it together into a cohesive team. Right. Boldness, somebody's got to, you know, you can't have ready, 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 aim, 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 yes. and never fire. Right. And and tough decisions have to be made. 
uh, that will uh, that will advance you. There's risk involved. Sure. But but you've got to you've got to have a bold outlook on life. Mm. Be a risk taker in many cases. Everything great that's ever been accomplished in life, somebody you go study it. Somebody, somebody took a big risk. You you can't be safe all the time and change the world. Every time, every every yeah. great thing that's happened in the history of the world is right. done because some bold man or woman said we're going to do this. Right. We don't know all the answers. There could it could fail, but you know, I, I thought about it, analyzed it, and. We're going ahead with it. Mm-hmm. Join with us, and you're going to sink or swim. But uh, you know, we, this this could be could be amazing if we pull right. this off. And then finally, uh, let me just close with this. It's called sure. a, a a serving heart mentality. Uh, I'm 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 not here as a leader to dominate you, to boss you around, to intimidate you. It's not about advancing my career. It's not about building my resume, but building your resume. It's not about my success. It's about the success of this organization and and the success of you individually. That's how a serving-hearted leader thinks. Right. And and when you get all seven of those uh, leadership principles working together, you you've got a, a leader of excellence. Leader of excellence. I love that. Pat, I could not be more grateful for you spending time with us today. I got, I got to tell you, you, you have, a, you have a great energy period, but when you talk about leadership, it, it, it's almost like you light up in a different way. And, and there's no surprise there because as you mentioned, you've had to be a leader across many domains, your household, one of them, you know, maybe the biggest one. But it is—it's truly impressive, and then the folks that you've talked to and learned from, the leadership that you've done yourself—it is all—it's it, something I think we should all aspire to. So you've given us gold here, man. I don't know how else to say it. This is absolutely fantastic. I think everyone listening will, if they actually listen and incorporate, they're going to be on to something special. So I truly thank you for sharing, Jim. Thanks very much. Nice to meet you, and. Uh... Glad we had a chance to, to visit. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them is up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E print, P-R-I-N-T.com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.